Uh, we're starting this series called uh, Traders. Uh, we wrapped up our August series. This is a, a series for the month of September. And uh, traders are simply, uh, the f- uh, fuller definitions on the back of your bulletin, but a trader is simply a, is a Christ-following people who have fully embraced God's dream and purposes for their lives in such a way that they traded in the empty pursuits, the me, 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 the more, more, more. They traded that in to have the satisfying life that's available only in Christ. And you've heard me say over the, the years that, you know, that there, there are, every culture has its unwritten rules. Every culture has its, its values and priorities. Uh, you've heard me talk about certain cultures that, you know, you, you go to a certain place and punctuality is a really big deal. When it starts at a certain time, you show up at that time. But if you travel to another country and you go there and they say it's going to start at this time, it may, stay, it may start you know, a half hour later. It's sort of laissez-faire. It happens when it happens. Some of you came to the 930 service. Others of you came to the 940 service. You know, you know who you are, right? You, there are subcultures within cultures. Uh, you can travel places and parenting is really hands-off. Go to some places, parenting is very hands-on, highly structured and organized. Um, cult- cultures have these, these unwritten rules that, that teach us how to, how to survive, thrive, how to, how, to, how to do life in those cultures. In fact, it, it's not cultures and just re- related to just countries anymore. Businesses are creating cultures. They're creating business environments in which employees thrive and the bottom line grows. Working at Google is completely different than working at IBM. They, they've created cultures that, that embody their values. And when we talk about being traders, what we are saying is we are trading in the the priorities of our culture. Traders, Christ-following people, live their life in such a way that in the culture that which they reside, people who operate from a different system of priorities look at them and say, you're doing life upside down. You're you're doing life kind of weird. It's counter-cultural. And by the way, Jesus took a lot of time to paint pictures in people's minds to help them understand the culture of the kingdom of heaven. He wanted them to understand that there is a spiritual life to to live in him that is completely opposite of the culture of, of the things that are valued by our world, which is why he would tell stories time and time again. He would, he would recite parables, and, and, and he, would, uh, he would take the, the blank canvas of our minds, and he would throw paint on them with, with metaphors. He'd, he'd talk about trees that bear fruit. He would talk about nets that catch fish. He would talk about uh, mustard seeds and treasures buried in a field. He, would, he did his very best to get us to understand what doing life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. He would often say, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. Meaning, this is how your, your world, this is that culture, this is the, what you're being told how to live. But I tell you this, it's actually the opposite. My, my dream for your life is upside down than the dreams of this world. It's blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. Love your enemies. 
Adultery is not just a physical act. It's something that can happen in your mind as well. Murder is not just something that happens in a dark alley on a dark night. Murder happens in our minds when we hate our brother. See, Jesus, as he was teaching the upside-down values of the kingdom, as he's giving metaphors and telling stories, he's helping us to understand that the culture of the kingdom... The culture of the kingdom looks like this, and you have been invited to walk and live and breathe in this new dream that God has for you. Now, what I'm about to tell you next, uh, it, it may not surprise you. Maybe it will. In fact, what I'm about to tell you next, it, uh, it, it may not offend you. It may offend you, and that's probably a good thing. You know, when you come to church, you need to get offended every once in a while. If that's not happening, I'm not doing my job, because the reality is that we have this default, this gravitational pull to live a life in such a way that we become the center of our universe, and God's word really just, it will offend us. When we start, when we, if we, we're sucked into a culture of self-centered living, which is about me, 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 and more, 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 we, we need to be offended. But this may not offend you, though. But here's what I want to tell you. The American dream is not the same as the kingdom dream. The American dream and all what's valued and all the priorities of, and it's just not an American dream, it's the world's dream. The, the American dream, the world's dream, is not synonymous. It is not equal to the kingdom dream. They are not the same. Yet the reality is that for many, many people in America who identify themselves as Christian, the lines between the two are blurred. I mean, you can just read the newspaper articles. You can watch the news. You can read the stats. You can't really trust stats because 96.2 of all, 96.2 of all percent of, of, of statistics are made up on the, on, on the spot. And uh, oh, some of you got that. Okay. Uh, you know, there's all the stats in the story. I don't want to go into all that. But I want to tell you this, that for the American church, there's, we're at a real crisis because I think for many ways we have blurred the lines between the world's dream, the American dream, and what Jesus' dream is for our lives. And what this series is all about is trading in all this stuff that leads to emptiness and pursuing and grasping and embracing God's dream for you and I. And that's why Jesus spent so much time painting the pictures and telling the stories, so that we would know how to do life in his kingdom, that we would know how to, do, how to embrace the things that Jesus values and wants for us. Why? Well, why would Jesus do all that? Well, because he knows that all those other dreams are a dead end. That they are empty dreams. They lead to, 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 to emptiness. A couple years ago, Tom Brady's playing in the, in the Super Bowl, and the newspaper reporter's interviewing him and saying to Tom, who already has many Super Bowl rings, says to him, you know, how many rings is enough, Tom? And Tom's response is, it's always one more. That is the reality of our lives. We're never satisfied. Yet in the kingdom of heaven dream that God has, has been illustrating for us through his son, Jesus Christ, this is where life has its deepest meaning. 
So one reason why Jesus paints this picture for us is because the other dreams are dead end. But more importantly, in this dream, in the kingdom of God dream, you need to understand that as we live this out, our life has meaning because you and I were created on purpose and for a purpose. Before you were ever conceived by your mother and father, you were conceived in the mind of God. Before there was ever a sparkle in dad and mom's eyes, God knew you. Just let this sink in for a moment because this is really important to understand. We'll talk about more of this in in the weeks to come. Let's just sink in. Psalm 139, verse, uh, verse 16. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. God, your father, saw you before you took your first breath. Not only did he see you, he scheduled all the days of your life. He he wrote a book about you before you even were conceived. He knew you. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God is talking to the prophet Jeremiah and says these words, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, which is the echo of Psalm 139, I knew you before you were born, I set you apart. Now, some people look at a verse like that and say, well, that's Jeremiah, he's a pretty special guy, he's a prophet, but that, you know, maybe that's an, an abnormal thing that God does, he sets someone apart, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not really sure he does that for everybody. Well, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26. From one man, God made every nation, and God determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Not only did God know you before you took your first breath, not only did God write your story before you started living it, uh, not only did he set you apart, he determined where you would live, the time and world history in which you would exist. He determined your race, your nationality. He determined everything about you, uh, who you should be, because he has meaning for your life. You were created on purpose for a purpose. And the enemy of your soul, the adversary of the church, will do everything he can to keep you from living that life. So empty dreams. More, more, more. Me, me, me. Because he fears you embracing God's dream for your life a life of significance. Here's what I want to do this morning as we get launched in this series. I want to show, before we even talk about about tradings and callings and purpose and all all those things, we'll talk about them weeks to come, but today I I just want to talk to you, I just want to expose the playbook of the evil one. I want to show you what those riptide currents look like, or the currents that want to suck you out to sea into the empty dreams. I just want to expose them for you by looking at a short story in Luke chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you, can, you can find uh, the, the passage in, on page 1,619 in the, in the Pew Bible. It's the temptation of Jesus. Now, 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 get this. Jesus obviously came to earth on purpose, right? He came on a mission. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Luke, a disciple of Jesus, says that, records Jesus' words. Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. He came on purpose. He came for a purpose. 
And what the evil one is going to do, we're going to see in this story, we're going to read in a second, the evil one is going to do everything he can to pull him away from that, to distract him, to lure him, to, to get him going off-road in areas that he was never intended to go so that the, the, the purpose would be undermined. And it's not a one-time event. This has been happening way before they get to the Gospel of Luke. It happens in the Old Testament. happens later in the New Testament. It happened to you last week. This happens day in and day out. This is the playbook. This is the strategies of the evil one to get you to embrace an empty dream and keep you from embracing a dream, the kingdom of heaven that that gives us life. So I just want to expose the playbook and talk about what that might mean to us so that we can be a people who trade in the empty dream and can use the 70 to 80 to 100 years or how many years God gives us. He wrote the book. He knows how many days we have. But we can live them in significance and meaning for the glory of his name. Would you stand with me? I want to read uh, just over a dozen verses here from Luke chapter 4 so we get a sense of, of the story that we're going to be talking about. Luke 4 verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. This is God's holy word. You can be seated. Jesus came living a life on purpose. He was going to the cross. He was going to offer his life as a substitute for any person who would admit their own sin and put their trust and faith in him. That, he, he came to give life and life abundantly. At the very beginning of his ministry, this, you know, after 30 years of obscurity, after Christmas, 33 decades has gone by, and we don't know where he's living in some backwater town. No one knows who, is, who he is, and now he's stepping out into ministry. He's just been baptized by his cousin John, who, by the way, lived a life on purpose, right? His purpose was to prepare the way. He had a life of meaning to live. And so Jesus is stepping out in this new ministry. He's getting going, and he's out in the wilderness, And the Spirit has led him there. God has led him to the wilderness to fast. Now, when you think wilderness and you think uh, desert, uh, don't think like sand dunes. Don't think trees. 
think like vast emptiness and stones everywhere, rocks. I mean, it's just like hard ground, stones everywhere, dry heat, very hot. And Jesus has been in that wilderness and he has been fasting. He has not been eating and he's starving. And uh, Satan comes to him and, and, and tries his first, his first uh, strategy. It's, it's uh, the strategy of appetite. He appeals to Jesus' appetite in the wilderness. And he says, hey, if you are the son of God, if you are really who you say you are, turn these stones into bread. Jesus, you're hungry. You, you, you haven't been eaten, and you're pretty important. You've got some cravings. You, you should fill them. I mean, look at all the stones around you. Turn them into bread. You know, Jesus set aside his divinity, his divine prerogatives, his fully embraced humanity. This was a temptation for him. I, I kind of picture when this temptation is going on that Jesus suddenly, as he's in this rocky wilderness, is seeing loaves of bread everywhere. You ever, you ever had that when you're, when you're hungry, you start picturing food? I mean, he's, he's picturing loaves of bread everywhere. He knows how good the, uh, the smell is when a loaf of bread is brought out of the oven. I mean, he, he knows that temptation, and Satan is saying to him, hey, man, you're pretty important. If you are the son of God, you've got, you need to eat, Jesus. And we know that, just, we just read the story. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He doesn't fulfill his appetite. Why? Is bread sinful? I pray not, right? <laughs> no, the, the bread's not sinful. It, the reality is, is that the Spirit has led him into the wilderness. God has taken him into the wilderness to fast. And if he fills, if he, if he gives into the craving, it's not about eating the bread. What it's about doing is filling appetites that run contrary to the will of God. That's the danger here. It's not the bread. And the reality for you and I, because this one comes at you day in and day out, the temptations come in cravings, in forms of cravings. And it's not just food. Certainly food could be that, but it could be something like being in control. It can look like being always being right. I need to be right. I have an appetite to be right. We have inherent cravings, you know, food and sex and shelter and pleasure and money and stuff. And, and it's not wrong, but, but, you know, there are certain contexts where filling, especially a sexual desire, is it's outside the will of God. And when we give into these, what we are doing is that we are wrapping our hands around a different dream. And it's a dead end. So this is the very first strategy that's going to come our way is a strategy of appetite. You, you need this. You've you got to have this. And what Jesus says, and man doesn't live by bread alone. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 33 and 34, Jesus will say to his disciples, my food is to, is to do the will of the one who sent me. Meaning, I'm filled up when I obey. Through obedience, through doing, living out the purpose that God has for me, that's how, I, that's how I'm filled. It's not, it's not that bread is bad. It's just that I'm not going to fill any appetite that runs contrary to the will of God. That's the first thing that's, that comes our way. It comes Jesus' way to pull us off track in living out the purpose he has for us. The second one has to do with this whole topic of allegiance. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world in a moment. Shows it all to him and says, look, Jesus, here's the deal. 
This could be all yours. This is all yours. And if you will simply bow the knee to me, I'll give it to you. True story. Uh, years ago, when I was working for United Parcel Service, I was a center manager there. Um, I, had, I felt like God was calling Tree and I to leave that job and, and move to Oregon. It's like in the early 90s. And, um, and I, I, I gave my resignation. And, um, and, and they, they didn't want me to leave. And my boss took, true story, my boss took me up on the roof of our hub, our building in San Francisco, and said these words. Steve, this could be all yours. <laughs> and inside I went, that sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> no. And, and the reality is, is that if I would have said yes, it would have, it, this would have been impacting because Jesus, when he's in the wilderness, it, worship me, Jesus, it's all yours. What he's getting... Just, it's just a little shortcut. He, he's inviting, be the shortcut savior. You don't need to go to the cross. Come on, I'll give it all to you. It's mine. He's telling the truth. He took it in the garden. It, it's mine. I'll give it to you. Just take a little shortcut, a little act of disloyalty in private. Not a big deal. Nobody gets hurt. You don't die. And what's Jesus say? No, I'm only going to worship God, serve him only. Jesus, even in the quiet, even where nobody sees him, won't commit an act of disloyalty, even though these temptations, just a quick little bow the knee, bam, you get it, instant gratification, all done. Jesus doesn't do it, not only because he doesn't want to worship a false god or worship Satan, it's because he knows he's not going to have that given to him by Satan. He's going to take it from Satan, and the Father is going to give him all authority on heaven and earth. So not only is it going to be a shortcut, it's also going to limit or disqualify an inheritance that Jesus shares with you and I. So, first play, Appetite. He doesn't want you living on purpose. He doesn't want you uh, enjoying a life of meaning. So he's going to appeal to your appetite and get you to, to fulfill cravings that are outside the will of God. He's going to tempt you with little acts of uh, disloyalty that are going to impact allegiance to God the Father. And then this last one here, um, it has to do with pride, but I, I use the letter A because today's service is brought to you by letter A. All right? <laughs> appetite, allegiance, ambition. In the story we read, Jesus is taken to the roof of the temple in Jerusalem. And some rabbinic writings, some scholars think that what's happening here is because some rabbinic writings talk about the Messiah appearing on the roof of the temple. We don't know if that's really what's going on here, but Satan takes him to the roof of the temple and says, throw yourself off, Jesus. Apparently, you put your faith in God the Father. You believe his word. You've quoted it all along here. So let me just quote a little scripture back to you. Psalm 91, you throw yourself off this temple. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will be protected. You won't even stub your toe because you're important. You're a pretty big deal, Jesus. And when you come launching off the temple and that whole place is packed, do it at a significant festival, Jesus. That's not in, I'm adding kind of my own paraphrase to it. There'd be people everywhere. And if you throw yourself off the temple roof, 
people are going to see and they are going to be amazed. Think about what a great way to start a ministry. Throw yourself off the roof. Angels appear. They bring you down slowly. It's like, ta-da, I'm here. I'm your Messiah. Do something big. Be spectacular. And this, this is a strategy that comes at us by the hour, if not the minute. Do something big. Come on. You deserve to be known. Your name should be on it. Don't you know that was your idea? Shouldn't you be speaking into this? I mean, come on, you're a pretty big deal. And for Jesus, the thing that's so important is, remember, Jesus came on purpose, for a purpose. I've come to seek and save the lost. He was going to the cross. Do something big. You know, here's the deal. If Jesus was consumed by big, he never would have left heaven. He left big and took on small. He left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh. And what he said to us through his apostle, Paul, you and I have the same attitude. Have the same attitude of Jesus Christ, who left behind all the big and embraced small. Yet this is one that the enemy will toss at us day in and day out. Oh, come on. Do something big. Get your name in lights. You deserve recognition. You're pretty important. And it's these three strategies that you will find in the beginning of Scripture. You'll find it in the Exodus account and the children of Israel in the wilderness. Satan appeals to their appetite. You've got allegiance issues and pride. We've got it here in the temptation story. Go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John, a disciple, says, don't love the world's way. Don't love the world's goods. There's appetite. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. There's allegiance. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, well, there's ambition, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world in all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. Before you were ever conceived by your mom and dad, you were conceived in the mind of God. And the enemy does not want you to live out a life of meaning. So he, he appeals to your appetite, to, to things that impact your allegiance to Christ, and ambition to derail you, to get your arms wrapped around empty dreams. And before we can even talk about those, we, we need to process it. So let me just toss some questions up here. Because these, this is really important for you to process on your own. And if you, if, if you find a place of community, this would be a great place to, to process in community as well. Here's some questions to be asking yourself. What appetites am I saying yes to that run contrary to God's will? What inherent cravings am I giving into that run contrary to God's will? And what you need to know is that when they do run contrary to God's will, it's an act of rebellion. You may not feel like it's an act of rebellion. It is. Second question in the process, are there compromises I am currently making that Jesus would consider an act of disloyalty? Are there shortcuts I'm taking that Jesus would consider an act of disloyalty. And finally, last question, am I doing things for my own glory?
Am I doing things so that I get credit? So that I'm noticed, recognized? We, we need to process these because this happened to you last week. And I want you to know, if you gave in to an appetite and said yes to something that runs contrary to God's will, it doesn't mean that the purposes God has for you are now void. Because you see over and over again the beauty of redemption. But what Jesus is saying to you is, leave that, it's empty. Be loyal to me and and be willing to be small so that the the God, the Father, may, may receive all glory. This happened to you last week, it will happen again next week. And he's calling you and I to be traitors, to let go of empty dreams and embrace a true dream. We wrap up with this, this, this final story from the great theologian Wiley e. Coyote. All right? <clears throat> Some of you are like, Wiley e. Coyote, who's that? We, ask your mom and dad, they'll tell you. I remember as a kid watching these cartoons, and Wiley e. Coyote's out in the wilderness, he's out in the desert, and his tongue is hanging out. He's been chasing Roadrunner unsuccessfully for about four decades. And he's, uh, he's in the wilderness, and he's thirsty, and he's, and he's dragging himself. And in the shimmering heat waves off the desert, he sees an oasis out there. And he musters up whatever strength he has to make his way there. And, and as he gets closer and closer and he's using his energy to get there, that whole oasis just disappears because it was a mirage. And what Jesus is trying to help us understand is all the stuff of culture all the me, 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 more, more, more. Well, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be happy if you had this, if you get this way, or if you do the. All that stuff is a mirage. It will not give you life. But in Christ, there is life. And he's asking you and I to trade that all in and embrace his dream. And when we do, we have every thirst satisfied.